1: The Volume. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Donate to...
0: What? Charles Darwin. The Nerd's is where it's at.
2: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brebert Alongside me is Logan Canson And today... We are gonna be ranking our top 10 players, 25 and under in the NBA, who we would wanna build a franchise around. So this is a long-term evaluation, not just flat out how good are these guys right now. Logan, I will let you get us started. Who do you have in the 10 spot? I first
3: wanna say, man, this is one of the most brutal lists I have ever been tasked with making. At number 10 is one of my favorite players in the NBA. Uh, he has been for uh, a few years now, and that's Tyrese Halliburton. Hmm. And uh, you wonder why I want Halliburton. He's one of the best passers uh, I've ever seen. He's super unselfish. He gets the offense into motion, right? It's not just driving kick. Like, he's a guy that will set the team up. He's just super unselfish. He's always looking to move the ball to the open guy. He's super creative. And when you talk about historical production at the point guard position in terms of passing uh, at such a young age, he's in – a tier of his own. Nine players have averaged 10 assists per game or more in their age 23 season or younger and only two have uh, since 2000. That list includes guys like Oscar Roberts and Magic uh, Johnson. You've got uh, Chris Paul and Darren Williams since 2000. Like Halliburton is a very, very special passer and I think he's just going to lead great team offenses for a year for years to come from his unselfishness um, to his creativity, everything. He's a great passer and I think he's got legit off-the-dribble creation. This is something that I was critical of in his rookie year. You know, he's got that funny kind of catapult-looking jump shot. Mm -hmm. Didn't know if it was going to translate, but it really has. It may be a little slow. It may look a little janky. It's effective. He shot uh, 42% on pull-up J's last year, 42% on step-backs, and he's a 40% three-point shooter. That has stood through and through. Um, He's a good, not great defender, I think, some of the arguments against him. I don't think he's a great two way guy like he's a good defender he's got long arms he's averaging over uh, one and a half steals per game for his career but kind of slight framed guys can drive on him force him around a little bit I don't ever see him being a great you know defender on the perimeter or point of attack guy and I don't think he's the most intuitive scorer you know out of these young guys I don't think he's a number one if I'm being honest with you I think he needs a couple one or two takeover scores alongside him but I think he is going to lead great offenses for The next decade just by way of his unselfishness like if we're just talking about pure scoring i'd probably take a guy like tyrese maxey like darius garland i just think they're better guards with yeah more intuitive scoring skill sets right i just don't ever see halliburton cracking 23 24 you know over 25 a night right i think he can get better but there's certainly a limit on that because he doesn't have great burst he doesn't get downhill a lot Mm -hmm. but That's the one knock against him. I don't think he's overly impactful defensively, and I don't think he's a number one on a championship team. But I'm just more confident in him than
2: the other young guards that are just off of my list. I and really like Halliburton. And I think he is certainly among the most promising young offensive engines that we have. And is just flat out one of the best playmakers in the league already. Makes such good decisions, but also is a legitimate advantage creator. Like, very inventive. Sees the advanced passes, the high-value passes that are out there at all times. It's a great skill set. And then he's a super efficient scorer because of his bread and butter stuff with the pull-up jump shooting in the floater game. Now, I don't think he compares as a scoring prospect to some of these other guys, as you hinted at, just because he's not going to be an elite rim pressure foul drawer. He doesn't have the most advanced bag offensively, but he's going to be a very good Extremely efficient scorer and a great playmaker and that is something that every single team in the league wants and I think that you saw his value as an offensive engine for Indiana very clearly this year. I think he was playing with better offensive personnel than some people thought coming into the year, but Indiana was an 85th percentile offense with him on the floor and he certainly gets the bulk of the credit for that. So I have him on my first few guys off and it's really... Nothing against him. It's just there's an incredibly high caliber of players on this list, 25 and under, Logan. And I think that's reflected by who I have in my 10 spot. I have Trey Young here, who I think is about as polarizing as they come. So I don't know where you have him. Here's the thing with Trey he is probably a top five regular season offensive engine in the NBA. He is going to be an incredibly high volume scorer and playmaker who is going to churn out elite team offenses. And we've seen it for three straight years now. He doesn't have to have great personnel alongside him. Like before DeJounte came into town, he didn't have a legitimate secondary creator really at all. And then once DeJounte was brought in, he had another guy who could handle some of those ball handling responsibilities and playmaking. But They took a significant step back in terms of spacing because you're replacing the Kevin Herter minutes with a average at best shooter in DeJounte. And nevertheless, they were the number two offense in the 2022 season and they were the number seven offense this past year and they are phenomenal when Trey is on the floor and just not very good when he's not out there. So no matter what, because of Trey's scoring, but really his playmaking out of pick and roll, you're just going to get a lot of great shots because you're in a constant predicament, right? He gets you on his back and then he has just this beautiful menu of options. He can draw a foul as consistently as anybody in the NBA. He can hit that floater at an efficient clip and a very high volume. Or of course, he is maybe the best lob thrower in the league. And I would say overall, the third best playmaker in the league to me behind just Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic. The problem... And the obvious downside with Trey is how much he has struggled in the playoffs. And I think that there are legitimate basketball reasons for that. The first one being that he is not a legitimately great shot maker. He is reliant on getting to the line at an obscenely high volume, oftentimes through disingenuous ways, not legitimate basketball moves. And you're just not going to get those calls as much in the playoffs. And we've seen his free throw rate drop down from like point. 4 1 to under 0.36, that's a legitimate little chunk of his offense that comes out there. Then you have the fact that he's not a good finisher around the rim, and rim pressuring is a very valuable way to consistently create high opportunities for yourself in the playoffs. Trey doesn't really have that. As a pull up jump shooter, he has this very high ceiling and can be electric there, but He takes a lot of really tough shots and isn't consistently efficient as a pull-up jump shooter. Like, he's sub-30% from deep in his playoff career, Logan. That's not a coincidence. And he does have this tendency to at times overexert himself because that's just how Trey is. You ride the highs and lows with him completely. He's going to dictate just about every possession. And for the most part, that's a very good thing, I would say, because he is your best offensive player player. He's your best scorer. He's your best playmaker. He's going to put you in the best position to get good shots. At the same time, There are obvious and historically established limitations to a very ball-dominant style. Maybe some of that is about personnel, Trey not having great talent around him. Some of it is also undeniably about his skill set and mentality and just not at all being a good off-ball player. And then also you have the fact that he is going to get hunted and exploited more defensively in the playoffs. So I do not like him as much on that playoff stage, no question, as I do in the regular season. And so I really legitimately considered putting a guy like De'Aaron Fox above him because I think Fox is the better pure shot maker with his bread and butter mid-range game. He is a much better rim pressurer and finisher, and those things translate to the playoff stage. He's also a better defender, and Trey has had some really ugly playoff moments. But when you look at Trey, he still churned out the number five playoff offense against a really good Boston defense, inconsistent, but really good personnel. And when I think about the stretch that he had in games three through five of that series, where he is just completely controlling the game and his genius as a playmaker and his pull-up jumpers are falling. So he's just walking into like 35 and 15 games and is beating Boston. There's just so few dudes who are capable of that. Like a down series for Trey was 29 and 10 on the same efficiency as De'Aaron Fox leading a good playoff offense without particularly good personnel or spacing alongside him. So I just think we have seen him do more with less than like anybody who would be contending for this spot. And I do think his offensive brilliance is more proven and sustainable than a guy like uh, De'Aaron Fox. I considered a guy like Brandon Ingram, but there's just a completely different level of, Hey, I can lean on this guy to be my offensive hub with Trey bi. It would be like rewarding him. Cause yeah, he's a good complimentary second option, but he cannot get you into the conversations that Trey can like Trey can be so special offensively that you can ride him for multiple playoff rounds. And that is a special thing, but the downsides are also real. I think we've seen them. And so that's why I have him in the 10 spot.
3: Yeah, Trey is a special offensive uh, elevator. You know, he can raise the floor of your team so well. That being said, uh, I do not have Trey Young on my list, and maybe this is an oversight by me, but uh, the biggest reason was that imposition on the game that you mentioned. I just don't know if – it's like Tyrese Halliburton can never be a one, but I trust him to, you know, lead winning offenses and play winning basketball within the flow of things. And this is not a slight at Trey – Trey can dominate the game in a completely different way than Halliburton can, getting downhill, creating opportunities for his teammates so easily. He really is a special playmaker and a special shot maker. I just don't trust him to play within the flow of a team offense. I've never seen that with Trey, and I think that's a, a limiting factor for me. I don't know. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. I'm overthinking it. I guess that I I guess what I'm saying is. I think Tyrese can be a complimentary piece, a number two or a number three on a championship team. I think with Trey Young, he is your number one. And I don't think Trey Young can be like your I, – I don't know if he can play alongside another superstar. That is my concern. I know mm-hmm. Halliburton could play alongside anybody. I don't know
2: if Trey could actually play alongside another superstar. I understand that because efficiency and the ability to fit in alongside other really good players and to not overexert yourself to the detriment of your own team, those are all very important if you are trying to get to the highest stages of winning basketball. However, I just think that Trey is a better offensive Mm -hmm. engine. I think he is constantly putting the defense in a compromised position in a way that Halliburton doesn't. I think he's a more dynamic playmaker out of pick and roll. And I think he is in a different stratosphere as a scorer because of how consistently he can get into the lane and to the line. And I think what's tough here is Trey has had these bad moments on the playoff stage, but he's taken teams Mm -hmm. and I believe is capable of taking teams to heights that I'm not sure Halliburton can as that sort of singular offensive engine with the supporting talent that Trey has had around him offensively, which really hasn't been all that good over the years. And so we can sort of sanitize halliburton because we haven't seen him on that stage at all and so you can't hold it against him i still think that trey is getting you into conversations as a scoring playmaking offensive engine that tyrese halliburton isn't
3: i hear that at number nine carson i have a guy who's on the different side of the spectrum than trey young Uh, trey's one of the best offensive engines in basketball the guy at my number nine spot Uh, is someone I expect to be one of the best defensive anchors in basketball, and that's Evan Mobley. Um, He's all-defense first team this year. He's 7 foot with a 7 foot 4 wingspan, averaged 1.7 blocks per game and 1.5 steals per game. I just think that Mobley is, again, he's going to be an anchor uh, for one of the best defenses in the league for years to come. I think the next progression for Mobley, uh, we've discussed this in depth, but is... Jared Allen probably getting shipped somewhere else for some assets. Mobley moving over to five spot and definitively being the guy that's holding down the middle for Cleveland. But his reactions are so good. His rotations, his timing. There's just a different level of defensive engagement. He's locked in, and he moves so well. That's uh, something that's really special about Mobley, just his instincts. He He knows where to be. He knows when to go certain places. The one knock is... Offensively there's still a, a long way to go. There's mm-hmm. not really a massive offensive bag. Right now he's a really good lob threat. He's got great hands, he's got a wide catch radius and like when he's around the rim it's cool because he's so long and athletic, he can just about jam anything. Like Mobley is a is an athletic freak in that respect. Outside of that, it's tough. There are major spacing concerns. He's a 23% jump shooter, a 22% three-point shooter. But the flashes are intriguing, you know, offensively long strides You get flashes of the handle of him in transition. He's got a smooth and fluid jumper. Now, I don't know if Cleveland is the spot where, you know, we're going to see him unlock more of that, right? Like, I don't see Mobley initiating when you have guys like Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell to lean on. That's just not smart. Uh, So, I don't ever really see Evan Mobley being, like, a dominant offensive piece. Like, I see the flashes. I think he could be effective. I don't know if he's, like, a 25-point-per-game scorer. I don't know if Mobley's got that in him. I think in the 20 to 23 range is definitely possible and that's like max offensive game Mobley, but he's going to be one of the best defensive players in basketball over the next decade. I think could definitely win a defensive player of the year uh, if Wemby doesn't leap him, but that's why I'm buying in and this is kind of where my tier is. These guys aren't high end offensive engines where they can singularly raise me to championship contention, but uh, they're going to anchor my defense and I really value that Um Basically Mm -hmm. everybody on this list I think kind of fits that bill at least. I I either expect you to take me to the top defensively or I want you to put me towards the top of the league offensively or Mm -hmm. uh, for some of the guys higher on this list, they tick both of those boxes. But Mobley's going to come in at number nine. Uh, I
2: just think he's one of the best young defensive pieces in all of the NBA. Well, I totally agree with that point that you just made. I feel like you have to be a truly elite foundational talent on one side of the ball Mm -hmm. to be on this list, because you're talking about building blocks and that's just what is required. I think Evan Mobley, if we are looking at sort of an archetype for what is the elite all NBA level version of him look like, I think it's a lot like Bam Adebayo in terms of his value. And I have Mobley at number nine as well. And that's not to say that him and bam are identical stylistically but if you just think about the things that bam excels at all the worldly defensive player in the conversation for the best in the world and it's not just great rim protection it's the versatility mm-hmm. it is the unique switchability that means that in any matchup on a playoff stage he is going to be a weapon i think that that's something that he and evan mobley very much share in common mobley is already ready to take on any assignment in a way that is totally unprecedented for a second-year player. And he is one of the best second-year defenders in NBA history, point blank. And then you think about offensively, there are a lot of stretches from Bam where you think, God, he looks average out there. And he's more explosive athletically than Mobley. So yeah, he has some more of that finishing out of pick and roll mobley is pretty average there right now honestly i think mobley has a higher ceiling as a jump shooter but definitely needs to progress but they both can be passive they can be inconsistent in terms of their scoring impact they're good playmakers though they're guys you can run actions through there you can trust to make good decisions consistently so i very much think that's the path that you want to see mobley on I have been super high on him. I loved him as a prospect. He was my favorite guy in that class. I wish that we had seen more offensive progress, but it is pretty crazy that he's this impactful and this good, this young. And it's because he is just a truly sensational defender. But in terms of creating for himself, He has so far to go. He was 12th percentile on post-ups this year. He was 7th percentile in isolations. The handle is not as functional and effective as I hoped it would be with him as a prospect. Obviously, he is still lacking in terms of strength. His touch is pretty average for a big, and he's not going to be physical, and he's not an insane vertical athlete. So all these things just sort of compound, and it's like, yeah, Evan Mobley is not going to be a super efficient high-volume guy offensively. You see when he tries to create himself under 42% on hooks, that has to get better. 43% on fadeaways is okay. But I just don't see that path to him being, as you said, like a foundational piece offensively right now. I think he would have to get significantly better as a jump shooter. 40% for mid-range, but you mentioned brutal from deep. And he's still not really taking those at a high volume, but... Long-term, running handoffs. I mean, passing is just such a valued skill set among all bigs right now. As a short roller, especially if he can continue to refine his floater game, I think he's a very valuable weapon there. And then he's gonna completely transform your defense and single-handedly make you elite on that end. So he's the weakest offensive player in my top 10, no question. That's why I have him down here. But again, think about Bam Adebayo. That's a guy who maybe too many nights You can forget about offensively, especially with the pure scoring, but he's so great defensively, and he has enough of those good nights offensively to where he's like a top-20 player and a pivotal guy on a team that has made the finals twice. That's what I think you look for with
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.
4: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Probably,
3: Yeah, it's a super valuable asset to have, a guy that can do that defensively. And uh, my number eight player kind of fits that same bill. I have Chet Holmgren in at number eight. And... I really think him and Mobley are really similar. The only advantage that I would give Mobley is I think Mobley is slightly better defensively, um, but it's comparable. And then, uh, you know, obviously we just haven't seen Chet play, right? Like we just haven't Mm -hmm. seen Chet actually take uh, NBA minutes yet. He's going to be effectively a rookie. We've seen him in Summer League uh, this year and uh, I think for a game last year. But Chet just has more in his bag offensively. It was really impressive at Summer League, and I hope it translates directly into the league. Uh, Just a smooth, smooth shooting stroke. He's going to immediately be able to space the floor. Uh, He's a good decision maker. He's got a little bit of a handle. I think he'll be able to attack closeouts at a decent level too. I'm, I'm really interested because Shea Gilgis Alexander is so special in how he can collapse defenses and get downhill. It just will. And how many guys have to keep an eye on him and have to respect him at all times. It just opens up the floor for everybody around him. Adding another guy that can one, clear out the paint for SGA to give him a wide open lane and effectively space the floor uh, is just going to unlock them both, I think, to a different level. Again, I think it is his peak, I don't know if Chet's a 25-a-night guy. I think he's kind of in that Mobley tier, 20-25 to 25 efficiently, but he's going to be able to space the floor. One thing that is similar to uh, Mobley that I love about Chet is the feel for the game, the mm-hmm. I know where I need to be, the instincts, the timing of his shots, the... That's what really stuck out to me watching Chet in person was just he always seemed like he was in the right spot where he needed to be and he's super long 7-1 with a 7 foot 6 wingspan can also switch yeah. out to the perimeter and guard guys it's just so effortless for him to block shots and so yeah that's the big distinction to me i think this guy is going to be a defensive anchor again for years to come i think he's one of the uh, most promising young defensive players in all of basketball and i think he's got more of a developed and reliable offensive game than Mobley again I don't know if he's a number one I think he's a number one defensively I don't think he's that offensively but again that skill set is super valuable and can just take your defense up to other heights and with SGA man if Chet can fill that bill Carson if he can get up to that one of the best defensive anchors in basketball and transform that Oklahoma City defense uh, I mean it when I say that you were looking at a legitimate contender out west I think it's going to be tough with Jokic in his size right like I think until Chet legitimately bulks up I think that's a tough matchup for him and anybody else in the league. But Oklahoma City could be top 10 on both sides of the basketball very soon with their two building blocks, and Chet's a big part of that. So I've got Chet at number 8. Um, I'm all in on Chet, man. I, I really buy into him. I think he's a special, special prospect.
2: Yeah, and I don't really know that we can even keep bringing up the, well, Jokic is going to be a problem thing as a concern. Like, look at what he just did to – mountain men Fair. like Gobert and Cat and DeAndre Ayton and Anthony Davis and then maybe the best defender in the league in Bam Adebayo. He's just an exception and B is an exception. What's most important is your pure rim protection and your ability to switch out onto the perimeter and defend multiple positions. Those are more important than your straight up post defense right now because there's just so few truly great post players. And I think that Chet is exceptional, like his defensive ceiling to me is definitely as high as Mobley's, Mobley has such great feet, but Chet is a really good natural mover too, and I think is clearly a better pure rim protector shot blocker, he's a little bit longer, his timing is just otherworldly, and at every level dude, I mean he blocked almost 4 shots a game in 27 minutes per game at Gonzaga, in Summer League it was 3.5 a game. And then offensively, I think, is in a different tier and has totally separated himself from Mobley. In my eyes, I understand that he hasn't played in the NBA yet, but there's just a different level of skill there, right? He was a much better shooting prospect, 40% from deep, basically, in college. And I think he is more fluid, certainly is a ball handler, and I think is, like, a more fluid athlete, so he's a better lob target. Again, his length helps him just a little bit there. He's a little bit springier. All around, I just think everything that Mobley does offensively, Chet pretty much does better. The passing is a strength for both of them. And that's the separator for me. I think they are both great defensive prospects. And I don't think either one of them is going to be a 25 point per game score. Mm-hmm. I think that they're probably going to be hovering around 20. But I trust Chet to do it very efficiently and to fill the ideal complementary roles for a big man offensively in today's NBA, elite roller, phenomenal popper, a guy who can be a lethal spot up shooter. I mean, he's going to be able to push and transition because of his ball handling. He can attack closeouts because of his comfort there. And then he can occasionally go down on the block. And even though he's not, a strong guy we saw at summer league. Like he is not afraid to embrace the physicality. He's got good body control down there. He's aggressive. So I have Chet a few spots higher, even just because I like him offensively that much more than Mobley. And I think they both fill an incredibly valuable role. If you were trying to win championships in today's NBA, which is the great defensive big, who is also highly versatile and who has legitimate offensive skill. So, My number eight is actually a guy from the same draft class as Evan Mobley, and that is Cade Cunningham, who I remain very high on, and he's tough to evaluate maybe just because we haven't seen as much of him. He only played 12 games this year. But I love the prospects, and I really do like what we've seen so far. I think that he is such a great example of the big ball handler that, like, is sort of the dream archetype in the league right now he is a very good playmaker he is inventive there he is going to make the right reads uh, being reactive and legitimately anticipates things like it's driving kicks it's out of pick and roll finding the roller he can make every pass with velocity one handed out of live dribbles so there's a very high ceiling there when you can do that at 6-6 six, six. and then I think he's going to be a great shooter, which I understand the percentages haven't shown so far, but he was a great shooter in college, 40% from deep, 85% from the line. He was 48% from mid-range on real volume in this year when he was healthy. And so I think that that's going to end up being an elite trade of his, which at that size is also extremely valuable. And then I love his two-way upside. And I think that that is what separates him from some other guys in these conversations. Like, Trey, obviously, is so much more proven as a playmaker, as a scorer in every way, than Cade offensively right now. He's a couple years older. But to be a bigger guy who can guard multiple positions, who you can attack, who can legitimately have a positive impact defensively in a big one, is just such an asset in that playoff environment I think he's great at the point of attack. I think he's got great hands. I think he's even got some value as a helper because of his size and awareness and activity there. He's just embraced that end of the floor in an impressive way for a Detroit team that obviously has not been playing for all that much. So he's not gonna be an elite rim pressurer or finisher to me in spite of his size. He just doesn't really have that kind of athletic pop, that kind of quickness in terms of first step but I think he's going to be a good three-level scorer who can use his size to get into the lane to get to those floaters. I do really like his mid-range game, and I think as his pull-up jumper becomes more consistent, that playmaking ceiling, that defensive impact is going to make him one of the best guards in the NBA.
3: Cade was my toughest cut from this list. Mm. He is number 11 for me. I I love Cade. I love Cade's game. I think you laid a lot of it out. Um, I, I think his rim pressure kind of is what took him off my list. I don't know. I just don't Mm -hmm. know if Cade's upper echelon, like I think he's like 22-9 and 6 or something like that, maybe at his peak. You know, I don't know if he's a takeover scorer too, but I really do like Cade a lot. And in terms of two-way ability, he's even in a different class than uh, my number seven guy, who uh, you've noted is not on your list, and I wonder how you're going to receive this. Maybe this is my bias coming out. At number seven, I do have De'Aaron Fox on my list. I still like De'Aaron a lot. He is 25. He's on the older spectrum of this list, but I really like what we saw this past year from De'Aaron and what we saw on the playoff stage. He is the fastest guard in the league. He is super dynamic. He's 82nd percentile out of isolation, 85th percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler. He's a legitimately great finisher. He was 77% inside the restricted area this year, and I've swayed. I have gone back and forth with how I feel about De'Aaron. It's tough to rank a guy like this, but... This past season, I'm going to buy in. I'm going to buy in on the jump shot, consistently getting better and legitimately improving. He is overall a 34% jump shooter. That's because he struggles from behind the arc. And if De'Aaron can just figure that out, if he can extend his range a couple feet back to behind the arc, he's fully unlocked. Like, you were looking at a guy that doesn't really have any holes. He's similar to John Morant in the way that De'Aaron is so damn fast that you will drop on him. Defenders will play a couple feet back off of him because it's like, oh, well, that's the best shot that we can get at this moment. I will take a deer and jumper over him driving in the lane, mm-hmm. getting to the mid-range or taking me to the hole because it's so easy for him if you give him a sliver of space. And it was, it was that easy for him this year. 47% out of the mid-range, 44% on uh, pull-ups, on step-backs, 48% on floaters. And with nobody else reliably around him playing well, he balled out against Golden State. 27-5 of 8. I know it wasn't terribly efficient, 42 and 33 splits, but... Again, he's going out there and just imposing his will on the game, every possession, trying to get downhill, trying to find a a good look. Nobody else is really playing that well. Savone is sold. And, like, that's another knock on him, I'd say, is the big arguments against him. He's not going to be an overly effective two-way guy. He's not a great defender. He is less perimeter-oriented than other guards. And the Kings didn't win until they put another all-star alongside him. So I think you could argue against him being a top-notch offensive engine. Those are all arguments against him. And I don't think he's a number one. That's what really separates him from the upper echelon of these guys. I don't think Fox is number one on a winning championship team. But he's one of the most skilled guys, and I think his jump shot is going to get better. In terms of other guards, I've just seen it more than Cade. And I don't know, man. I guess I just have something against Trey, dude. Fox Mm -hmm. can dominate the (laughs) ball on ball like Trey, but he's just he can still play within the flow of the offense. I really value that in terms of cohesion and sharing the rock. I just think Trey is Trey's going to pound that ball, man, and I don't like that aspect of Trey Young's game. So that's why I would go with him. I've seen it more than Cunningham and I just I'm not a big Trey Young guy. So Fox is one of the older guys on my list, but he's very proven and I genuinely think I think there's more room for improvement. Like I think he can improve more as a jump shooter. I think he can actually get better again, is that number one best player on a title team status? I don't think so. But Fox is really good. And I'd take him any day of the week, man. I I legitimately think the jump shot has improved. And he's one of the most dynamic guards in all of basketball. So I'm going to take my boy Fox.
2: I love Foxy. He was by far my toughest cut. And I legitimately went back and forth (laughs) multiple times with him and Trey for my 10 spots. So I can't be upset with you about this i think it's a legitimate conversation but i do think there is this thing with trey young where people just don't like him and aesthetically (laughs) we don't like it and so we create this image of him in our head that can be worse than what he really is like i have to say it again logan who do you think had the better playoff series this year was it De'Aaron fox or was it trey young well, I can't, my heart I liked watching Fox ball like that more. I Who didn't? It? it was some incredible shot making from the mid range. He's an incredible athlete, which is really fun to watch. But Trey outproduced him in terms of scoring and playmaking. The efficiency was identical that... and he led to a better team offense against a defense that was at least of the same caliber as Golden State's without a better supporting cast. Do you think so... volume comes into play at all with that? the efficiency is the same so i just think trey is so great as a playmaker mm-hmm. that is really the separator for me like i do believe in De'Aaron fox's mid-range game and i think that is such an important counter and is such a valuable weapon to add on top of this next level quickness and finishing like shooting 47 percent from the mid-range on high volume makes him a lethal scorer in a playoff environment those things translate and he is a significantly better defender than Trey there's no doubt about it I mean he's longer he's got better feet he's more engaged he's a really good defensive playmaker but at the same time he's still not going to be an overly efficient guy in a high volume role in my opinion because teams are going to ultimately try to force him into those jump shooting tendencies as much as they can. And we saw that. He's putting up nine threes a game in that series and he's just not a good three-point shooter. That is not efficient offense. And he is so much more reactive as a playmaker instead of actually having that next level vision where he is anticipating things and he is creating all of those super high volume or high value looks for his teammates at the level of like a Trey. So I think... The ceiling that I can get from Trey over multiple playoff rounds, if he is at the level of shot-making that is even close to what he does in the regular season, he can just take your team offense to higher heights. And if you put him in Sacramento, man, if he had that kind of spacing... And I get it. This playoff series was not the epitome of, like, the Kings playing great mm-hmm. around Darren Fox at all. Herter was bad. Harrison Barnes was bad. Sabonis was bad. But still, it is, like most of the time, basketball heaven offensively. And if you drop Trey into an environment like that, how much would his shot quality go up? How much would his shot selection improve? Would he stop sort of forcing some of the things that can be so frustrating about him? And what if he had that kind of shot making around Mm -hmm. him and he's creating all the same looks? I just think Trey has done more with less up to this point. And again, it's over multiple years. Like De'Aaron Fox took a big leap This year, And this Mm -hmm. is like the all-time high for him. But if there is some inconsistency with his jump shooting, well, we know that Trey is going to be an elite offensive engine, at least in the regular season context. And he was by far the primary offensive engine on a conference finals team. It's very, very close. But those are the reasons that I ended up giving Trey the edge.
3: Yeah, I understand that completely. That is a good point too. I don't think this is an ideal... This isn't the best season to judge Trey Young off of because I think the Atlanta Hawks just made a fundamental misstep by going out and getting DeJounte Murray. I think the best way to maximize Trey Young, well one, the first thing that you do is buy in on Trey Young as your number one guy. He's going to initiate everything. The next thing that you do is get complimentary pieces with great shooting around him to maximize his abilities. I understand why they went out and got DeJounte fundamentally, but I don't think he's the best fit alongside Trey. So, I think that's a fair point, but I don't know, man. I I do think, I don't think this is the apex for Fox. I think there's still more room to grow, and I'm also banking on that. I think Fox is still, not to say Trey isn't going to get better. I think Trey's going to get more consistent. I I think there's another gear that I'm expecting or maybe blindly hoping for uh, moving forward.
2: But I I think Fox can, can even improve on this season. We'll see, but he does feel like one of the most finished products on this list, just given that he is, I think, the oldest guy at 25 years old and is already in a great basketball situation offensively. And again, he's only been at this level for one year, whereas guys like Trey have done it for multiple years consecutively. So I can just trust that a bit more. My number seven is Paulo Boncara, Logan, who is just such an impressive, really one-of-a-kind talent. When you consider what he's capable of in terms of his skill at 6'10", 250, being a hell of an athlete, he is a uniquely effective rim pressurer for his age and just had the second most free throw attempts this past season by any rookie since 2000 only to Blake Griffin, who came into the league as, frankly, a man amongst boys like just a next-level athlete and obviously a more conventional big who's going to have those kind of pain opportunities created for him, whereas Paolo is really creating it for himself a lot. And there's a special offensive versatility. He was already Mm -hmm. a 78th percentile post-hub, including passes. He is so physical down there and is skilled in terms of body control and some of that short-range shot-making. But I think most impressively, arguably, is... How he can play make out of those situations. Like, versus doubles out of the post, he can make skip passes to shooters. He can dump it off through traffic to guys in the dunker spot. In driving kick situations, I think he's impressive. And his ability to make reads out of pick and roll for, again, a 20-year-old who's 6'10", 250. The fact that he's even an average pick and roll hub offensively in terms of efficiency is really impressive. I think the swing factor for what ceiling he can reach offensively is going to be his consistency as a jump shooter because he was 38% Mm -hmm. from mid-range. He was 30% from deep this year. I know you expressed some frustration with his tendency to maybe settle when he does have this incredible athletic ability but I like his shot mechanically. I do think it'll improve. I do think he's taking tough shots here. Like immediately as a rookie, he was inserted as the number one option and was the primary focus of defenses. And that's a lot to bear. And he handled it really well. And I just don't think efficiency is a really valid criticism for rookies in high volume roles like That Like, LeBron was wildly inefficient as a rookie. Okay, it's just what happens. You're on bad teams. You are still adapting to this level of play. You're young. You're not close to the fully realized version of yourself. And I think the fully realized version of Paolo is an elite rim pressurer, a guy with a really outstanding level of offensive versatility, post-mismatch hunter, isolation bucket getter, a guy who... I think will become capable in spot up situations, who's a menace in transition, giving his grab and go ability or just filling the lane as this kind of athlete at his size. And then a really good playmaker with a plus defensive ceiling. I think Paolo is gonna be special and I could see him being even higher on this list. Yeah,
3: I don't uh have a whole lot to add. Paolo is at my number six spot and I absolutely love him. Um Yeah, he did have a tendency to settle, but I think that's a good point that you make about the situation that he was placed in with Orlando. It's a lot of isolation stuff. It's a lot of him initiating from the top of the key. But for the long term, I think that's better for Paolo. You're giving him a situation where he can go out and make mistakes. He can do a little bit of everything and grow his bag Mm -hmm. out. Like, I'm a big part of why I was happy he went to Orlando. You have a lot of young talent that can grow alongside him here that is promising, but he could immediately come in and be the number one guy. Uh, I love Paolo, and my big question about most of these guys to be on this list, can he be a number one? Maybe. I can legitimately see Paolo being a number one on a great team. Like, I think he can mm-hmm. drive a great offense, and it's because of what you said, the versatility as a role man, as a ball handler, as a, a post-up in isolation. Like, it's just, that's one thing. It's like, I see him make all these tough shots, and it's like, yeah, he's settling and stuff, but to be 20 years old and to be capable of doing that is remarkable and if paulo can extend his range out to the perimeter and start doing this off the dribble stuff that he does in the mid-range out there i mean i think he's that's just another thing that is going to make him unstoppable and i'm so glad you brought up his playmaking that's a big part of this i know the numbers don't jump out at you for assists a game i mean for a big dude i think that's super impressive but Paolo's a legitimately good playmaker, and if he becomes even more unselfish, he's looking to create opportunities, cut out those inefficient, tough looks, I think Paolo could fully realize himself. I legitimately think he can be the number one on a championship-winning team in the future. Uh, I believe in Paolo yeah. that much. And, yeah, if anybody has him top five, I don't have an issue with it, man. He has a special skill set oh. at 6'10", 250. I
2: probably – would have an issue no, actually, with top five I just actually think, yeah like, i'm looking at it yeah I, that's that's a fair point there's a pretty clear delineation but i'm definitely good with him at six where you have him he's like a skilled wing in a bigs body with freak athleticism that's the sales pitch right there it's a pretty easy one for me to buy i have chet at number six though just because although i think paulo has more of that high volume number one offensive ceiling My confidence quotient in these guys panning out as the best version of themselves that is most conducive to winning basketball is higher for Chet. I'm just so in on Chet, and I have been since he was a prospect. He was my favorite guy in his class, and I am so confident that he is going to be great at his defining traits, the shooting, the rim protection, the passing, the finishing as a roller. Those things are just so valuable to winning basketball and especially playing alongside a guy who can already handle those number one scoring and playmaking responsibilities like SGA. Forget about it, man. I mean, that is just a perfect complimentary.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss.
4: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Number five is a gentleman uh, I share the, my birthday with, August 5th, yeah. 2001. That's my man, Anthony Edwards. I love Anthony Edwards. He is up there for one of my favorite players in all of the NBA. He has insane physical tools. He's an absurd athlete. He can jump out of the building. It's one of my favorite things about Ant is he can truly elevate around or with or Mm -hmm. over anybody. Uh, Ant is bouncy as a castle, man. He's super slithery in the lane. He's got a good first step. He's strong and physical, a good handle for a guy his size. And, like, I just see him – yeah, potentially being a just a complete takeover scorer and the complete package. I know he was just a thirty-four percent pull-up jump shooter. I know overall he was a thirty-eight percent jump shooter, but this is a weird. He just gets in the zone enough as a player. Like I just see him in games where he gets in rhythm. Granted, that comes with it ebbs and flows, right? I've seen stretches where And is completely off as a pull-up jump shooter, but I've just seen stretches where it's Back-to-back-to-back to back to back possessions where he is knocking down tough off-the-dribble looks out of pick-and-roll. Pick I legit buy him as an off-the-dribble creator, and we have seen continued development from him as a decision-maker, as a playmaker, and a passer as well. I think he's a legitimately good defender. He's strong. He's got good hands. He's engaged. He fights through screens. I think he's even an effective weak side rim protector, too. My favorite thing about Antho is just his unbridled confidence and how much he is about ball and loves this game he believes in himself and I think just tangibly has gotten better year in year out and then what we saw in the playoffs this year was super impressive to me he shredded Denver in the playoffs he was 98th percentile as a pick and roll ball handler in that series like the level we saw him reach as a tough shot maker was absurd Uh, the, the tough shot making was just on full display so can Ant be a number one Yes, I completely think he can. He's just not there right now, but I think in a few years definitely could be there. Outside of that, I mean, I really think he has everything. I think it's all coming together. I think he's improved as a playmaker, as a scorer, as a ball handler. I think he has to improve basically in every area, but it's coming together, and he has every single year. I think 25 points per game next season is on the table for Ant, especially if they move Carl Anthony Towns uh out of minnesota I, I definitely and this is no joke like i am such a believer in Ant. i played with him up to my number two spot that is how high i am on anthony edwards yeah one day being one of the best basketball players on the
2: planet uh, i love him it's a real bull take that he might average 25 a game next year logan it's not like he averaged 24.6 this year tough man i think he could get that point four i
3: think he <laughs> could squeeze it out i mean dude i think if they get cat out dude i mean twenty eight, twenty nine could be on the he's he's like that yeah. man
2: and his aunt's absurd well i've been saying for a couple of years that ant absolutely has scoring champ potential and i think that this is where we get into the guys who are bona fide mvp candidates at their peaks and who i am confident in having the potential to be a number one on a championship team or like at least firmly in those conversations mm-hmm. I have Ant at five. It is super tough. I think the delineation between him and some of the other guys is uh, a combination of slight edges in like playmaking, two-way impact, and the intermediate game where a guy like SGA, Mm -hmm. for example, who I have at number four, he's just so refined as a scorer. His touch shot making, his short mid-range pull-up game, that's really the only thing that Ant is missing, but... It really doesn't hurt him all that much because he is one of the handful of best athletes in the NBA, no question. And you just do not see a combination of quickness, strength, and uh, vertical explosiveness like what Anthony Edwards has. And it makes him one of the best finishers in the NBA, period, point blank. And I've seen NBA University on Twitter, which is a great account, tweet out these graphics with like rim shot quality, and then rim finishing, and his rim shot quality grade is like an F, because he takes so many contested looks there, but it just doesn't matter, because his rim shot making is like an A+, you just can't really stop him, he'll go through you, he will navigate around you in the air, and he's gonna get a bucket, and when he is dialed in as a pull-up jump shooter as well, like he just feels like one of the most unstoppable scorers in the NBA already, and he's, 21 years old Logan like my god he is progressing as a playmaker and is starting to make better reads and decisions there he did take a big leap defensively so if you have Ant at number two I can't be all that pissed about it of course he's not as finished a product as some of the guys above him because they're like three years older than him in most of these cases but I also do think It is a little bit tougher for me to see him reaching like an SGA level of playmaking. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit tougher for me to see him reaching that level of all-around refinement as a scorer, which really does matter. Hey, if you're a good pull-up jump shooter from deep and you are an A-plus athlete, that'll get you really far. But there are situations in which you need to have that intermediate game and it can be a separator and a guy like SGA just excels there. But I love Ant. And I would not be surprised at all if he's an MVP and a scoring champion and all of these incredible things.
3: For sure. Uh, this is a good seg here. I got SGA at number four as well. And I think that's the distinction that I made. Uh, I just think SGA is just more completely unstoppable right now. And I just think we saw it more last season. You just couldn't. <laughs> you could not stop SGA. It's mm-hmm. uh, He's one of my favorite players to watch in all the NBA. The way he uses his offhand uh, – to drive and push guys. Uh, The way he can decelerate and accelerate, it's really fun watching uh, the angle his ankles turn at when he's stopping on a dime too to like, well, not only like that helps him move to like the next spot, but to sell the fake even more. Like there's just some really cool nuance to how SGA serves his buckets. Uh, He's not a great perimeter guy, but it doesn't matter. You can't stop him in the mid range. And then he's a great creator on step backs, pull ups, stuff like that. 54%, 54%, 10 to 14 feet, 48% mm-hmm. in the paint, non-restricted area, on 7 attempts a game, 42% in the mid-range, 47% on pull-ups, 43% on step-backs, 45% on fadeaways. He's one of the best tough shot makers I've ever seen. It's it's crazy and I love his his physicality on the low block, his his patience in the post. He's just got genius scoring it's like it's it's ingrained in him I don't know it's it's an it's a killer instinct that SGA has man Um, he's an 83rd percentile pick and roll ball handler 79th percentile isolation guy and I don't have a single argument Uh, I separated this by a couple of categories why I want them the arguments against him can he be a number one I have no arguments against SGA I think SGA is the man can he be a number one yes right now I think he is a number one uh, as an offensive engine and like I said, dude, if Chet can take this defense up to another level, I think you're looking at a, a playoff contender with upset potential in the first round. And if the team gets better, if we see team success come along with that, you're talking, you know, 55 to 60 wins for sure. I think SGA is an MVP candidate. He's flat out just one of the best scorers in the league. That's
2: that's the big sell. When you say number one, do you mean on a title team? Yes. Okay. Okay. I figured, because I was like, well, a lot of these guys are number one, well- <laughs> and it's already a number one. Yeah, I love SGA, and God, did I have a dilemma between him and Jason Tatum, for sure. if I'm being honest. sure, for sure. Because right now, I think that SGA is a slightly better scorer and a better playmaker, and the gap in terms of scoring really comes down to this. SGA gets to his bread and butter no matter what because you just can't stop him from slithering into the lane and once he's in there it can be anything it can be a floater if he's looking at a drop it can be his patented turnaround where he goes into you takes the bump and then gets it it can be that short mid-range pull-up he has incredible navigation and traffic his footwork and body control getting to the rim where he has incredible touch whereas Jason Tatum is kind of a uniquely erratic score for the caliber that he is, which this regular season was 30 plus points per game on really good efficiency because of his reliance on pull-up jump shooting, particularly from deep, which he's not great at. He's good, not great there. And so he can fall into these lapses where he's relying on that. SGA, like you said, is not a dynamic three-point shooter, but he doesn't need to be because he's so phenomenal in the mid-range area. And he does not try to be. So I am all in on SGA. I also think he's a legit plus defender and particularly an incredible defensive playmaker. His length is just outstanding. His ball instincts are so good. And yeah, I was really tempted to put him above Tatum, man. I think that Tatum's advantage probably comes down to the things that he still hasn't unlocked and the defensive ceiling that we have seen him reach where it's Mm -hmm. like wow this guy is one of the top two three perimeter defenders on the planet when he puts that together and his playmaking is there and his pull-up jump shooting is there and if he continues to diversify his shot making and really build out a more efficient mid-range post-up game like it's really tough to say who's better right now but who do i feel is more tapped out in terms of ceiling it's probably SGA so these are marginal calls and I understand that people have problems with Tatum's temperament and his offensive consistency and I get all of those things but he is still really uniquely accomplished for this age and I don't want to devalue that but this is a tough one man this whole list is full of tough choices and again all these guys I think are just in the top five phenomenal talents consistency is the key word when talking about Jason Tatum
3: and that's really why I also considered putting SGA higher it's like Tatum has these just like identity crisis man like where he just doesn't know where do I go what do I do this possession do I settle for the three because at his peak Tatum looks like he could be the best player in the NBA I mean that wholeheartedly like when Tatum is fully dialed in you were sitting there going oh my god this guy's unstoppable. He's like the—he's the best player in the league. He's got all these lead star wing traits. He's a tough shot maker with legitimate off the dribble creation, and him being able to expand out to the perimeter just gives him, like, exponentially bigger chances of having high scoring games. Right? These fifty pieces with like seven or eight threes made—that's something that other guys on this list can't do. When he's fully mm-hmm. dialed in, you're sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, he's such a great playmaker." He's driving to the rack and making these crazy kickouts. But then. He just disappears, and I don't know where that guy goes. That's the big thing with Tatum, and it's from game to game, from night to night, and from late-game situation to late-game situation. He has to improve, in my opinion, just in consistency overall as a playmaker and in big moments because we haven't really seen SGA in crunch time, in back against the wall. We have seen Tatum, and Tatum has not really lived up to his full expectations, but I think you make a really good point, too. I think Tatum has much more tangible room to get better. And that's another reason that I would go with Tatum. But it was hard. I don't love Tatum. I think SGA is drastically more consistent than Jason. And that's what's so frustrating. But I think it's a time thing. And I think with a year or two, and it's tough because you want to see him fully realize it right now, right? We want this instant Tatum's there. I think we need another year or two of Tatum before he fully realizes that consistent night in, night out, I'm one of the best guys on the planet, and I'm going to prove it. Uh, This was a tough call, but I'm marginally going to give it to Tatum, and I do still. I know a lot of people have said Jason Tatum cannot be the best player on a title
2: team. I think he can be. I think it's just too early to make those calls, bro. He's 25. Like, he is on stages that other people aren't Mm -hmm. on at this age, and that very much applies with SGA. And maybe some people think that this is a crazy conversation to be having because they look at the team – context and they say, well, look at this. Tatum's already been the best guy on a finals team and multiple Eastern Conference finalists. Of course, we are looking at completely different stratospheres of talent around them, but SGA hasn't been the best guy on a playoff team yet. So of course, that is where you are most battle tested on that stage. That is where you have to do it for a prolonged period against the best teams in the league who are seeing you night after night and adjusting to try to attack every little weakness in your game. I think SGA is going to hold up really well on that stage because I don't see a weakness of his that will be exploited. But Tatum, yes, has had his down moments. Maybe hasn't held up quite as well on that stage as we would have hoped, but has still really done some very impressive stuff for a 25-year-old. And again, as we talked about, I think still has a bit more room to grow. And we've seen those leaps within the past couple of years, right? becoming more committed to getting downhill eating up way more free throws becoming more physical i think that he's improved as a rebounder he can be frustratingly inconsistent as a playmaker but he's clearly taking strides there he's gotten better defensively so like we are approaching the fully finalized version of jason tatum and uh, i think he's capable of great things so now we're into the top two logan and uh Seems like we might both have a guy who has not yet played in the NBA. Who is in your 2 spot? Number 2 I have Victor
3: Wembanyama and I know people are probably tired of hearing about Wemby, right? He's just been so hyped up uh, all throughout this offseason, but uh yeah, I'll I'll buy in like everybody else. I I think that he's in that Chet and Mobley tier when we talk about defensive anchors for the next 15 seasons, but it's on a different level with his length again it's mm-hmm. it's absurd how easily it is for him to block shots how how much room he can give guys on the perimeter when he switches out there he has best defensive player in the world potential wholeheartedly and i think he's going to transform defenses for the next 15 years his floor is just crazy high like i don't know if we've ever seen a prospect with this kind of floor Uh, if he fully realizes his offensive versatility he could very well be one of the best offensive players on the planet too um initiating on the low block in the post creating from the perimeter as a role man as a ball handler as a tough shot maker I think this first year I think the big thing for Wemby what he needs to do after watching him in summer league is creating those reliable bread and butter looks that he can get to every time if it's turning around over his right shoulder and knocking down a fadeaway if it's a post hook I mean that like it's cool. The gimmick is sick, right? Oh, the big deer, the 7'5", the Kevin Durant. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's not what's going to be most effective at the NBA level, right? And in clutch situations, like where it's late game or it's late in the shot clock, I think that's going to be something that is cool that you can go to with Wemby, that he can make these tough shots and these tough looks. But I think the most important thing is carving out a reliable, easy offensive game and it should be at this size. He just towers over everybody. There shouldn't be anybody who can affect his shot wherever he's going from. But it's going to be by starting getting easy looks that's with a pick and roll with him as the roll man getting to the rack drawing attention or um, and, and taking an easy look inside or again, like I said, creating on the low block. I think that's what he should do this rookie year. I'm not saying he should never initiate or never do that. It's cool. But I think he should look more to get easy, consistent looks that he can rely on for years to come. And I think that starts on the block and in the post. But the ceiling is is untapped. We've never seen a guy with this high of a ceiling. I think he's going to be the best defensive player in the world one day. Could be top 10 as an offensive player. Again, we're looking years out. I don't know when this is going to be realized. It could be two years. It could be five. I don't know the timetable but I'm going to buy in as this guy is the best player on a title on a on a contending team wholeheartedly.
2: I think two years is
3: a pretty accelerated oh well, yeah yeah to put for sure
2: young Wemby man I mean he's 19 years old but I have him on my number two spot as well and you talk about this archetype that we've seen now three times of the dominant defensive big who can fill multiple roles efficiently offensively. Yeah, nobody epitomizes that more than Wemby. And he does have a level of being an offensive hub that he can get to that I don't see for Chet and that I don't see certainly for Evan Mobley while having the highest defensive ceiling just because, well, these other guys have great mobility. So does Wemby, freakish mobility. And he's 7'5 with an eight foot wingspan, man. And that size alone Is all it takes to be like one of the great pure shot blockers in NBA history. Everybody of that size, like Mark Eden was seven foot four, right? And is a historically great shot blocker. Manute Bull, he was seven, seven with whatever. I mean, almost a nine foot wingspan. I don't know that it was official, but he blocked 10% of opponent twos while he was on the floor. Just ridiculous stuff. Wemby is that kind of physical monster in terms of size with high level mobility, great feet. He's really smart. He's got great timing. Like he's just going to be one day the best defensive player in the league. And I think it might be the only reason that like Chet and Mobley don't hold those titles Mm -hmm. just because he's that crazy. And then offensively, we've talked about it before, but an unprecedented level of ball handling and shooting fluidity at this size is a really good shooting prospect off movement is a comically massive lob target as a roller. And Out of the post, yeah, needs to be a little bit more physical, but does have this ability to just shoot over people and makes good reads out of double teams. And... As a driver, again, because of the physicality, he can get stopped in that 8 to 10 foot range and settle for runners. But if he continues to build out his frame and he becomes a legitimate downhill force there too, I think he'll be the best player in the world. He's a good passer. He's a great shooting prospect. He's going to be a massive, highly efficient target around the rim. And he is going to be probably the best defensive player on the planet. And I just think his floor is like all NBA kind of stuff. And if he puts it all together offensively with the higher-end skill and shot-making, then yeah, he should be the best player in the league. But I can't put him number one because the guy who is number one has proven such remarkable value at the NBA level on the biggest stages. But everybody else, yeah, man, I expect him to be better than Jason Tatum. I sure do. So who do you have in that one spot, Logan? Surprise, surprise! I have Luka Doncic
3: at number one, and this is not hyperbole. He's one of the greatest offensive players ever. I think we can safely say that at this point in his career, he's one of the greatest passers of all time too. He's just a genius passer and playmaker. Uh, Luka is so good at playing at his own pace. It's so deliberate, so methodical. It, it's art to me, right? Like the way I, I, I like. I just like pointing to these two guys, Jokic and Luka just force you to play at their pace and it's I I just you don't see it with any other guys like SGA a little bit a little bit the way he moves but Luka and Jokic are just so comfortable moving at their own pace. He's got all time footwork. He is strong as an ox. He can just bully guys in the post. That's something that other you know rare other offensive initiators have too. It's like LeBron esque the way he can just back you down and it's an unstoppable shot if he wants and he's an all time tough shot maker. Uh He's super effective in the pick and roll, 89th percentile. It's f- so funny to be watching any Luka game or any highlight. The defense always has to respect Luka, and there's like four guys focusing on him all at once. There's a guy hedging, a guy helping, and the help side guy likely is already rotated over, and Luka just whips that to the corner. Like there's four guys looking at one dude on the court. He just commands that sort of attention offensively analytically he's great 7.7 points per 100 possessions better with Luka uh, 120.2 offensive rating with him on the floor he has led a number one offense he's number two in career playoff points per game behind Michael Jordan with 32 and a half and again you talk about some of the other guys' playoff production already you look at the western conference finals run in 2022 you beat the defending western conference champion Suns, a legitimately great team not only beat them spanked them T- took him over, bent him over, and spanked the Suns. Lost to the eventual champion Warriors. You knock out one of the best defenses in the league, and Rudy Gobert and that Jazz team, I mean, dismantled the Utah Jazz. And so I, I think there are a few arguments you can make against Luka. I don't think any that disparage him to not be in the number one. More than play- uh, more than four playoff games played minimum, he is tied for number one in turnovers per game with 4.4. That's with Trey Young. Yes, he turns over the rock a lot. I'll take that with what he brings offensively. I don't ever see Luca being a great defensive player. I just think it's such a burden on him being this ball dominant offensively. It's just hard exerting that much energy defensively too. And Luca's probably one of the whiniest guys in the league. Like he embellishes contact. He's a bit whiny. I don't love that aspect of Luca, but again, this isn't something that's going to take him down a mark. This guy easily can be the best player on a championship team. For the next decade, he's just flat out one of the greatest offensive engines of all time, man. Like, Luka's super special, and I think if you're looking overall today, not just under 25, you tell me if you think differently, Carson. I think it's Jokic, I think it's Curry, and then I think it's Luka in that order in guys that I would take, and I really heavily would debate Luka and Curry for that two spot, but that's my order. It's top three, and I think all of those guys could be the best player on a
2: championship team like next season. Well, I think that Steph is definitely better than Luka offensively Mm -hmm. right now. And a huge part of it is uh, malleability and versatility stylistically and also efficiency. I mean, like Steph and Jokic, it's hard to overstate how historically efficient those guys are. That is the one thing with Luka, right, is that he is a very ball-dominant player. But what I will say is that in his ball dominance, he still has a different level of of the variety of ways in which he can get himself a bucket. Like you mentioned his pick and roll dominance, but he's also an 87th percentile isolation score. He's Mm -hmm. also an 85th percentile post-up score on high volume. It's just unstoppable, man. I mean, at his size, with his change in pace, with his deceptiveness he's always going to be able to get into at least that mid-range area and get himself a good shot. And the turnarounds are lethal and the floaters are absurd and the foul drawing is elite. And then you consider the fact that sometimes he's just utterly ridiculous on the step back threes, all this while he can make every pass in the book, insane skip passes to the corner and these incredible lobs with perfect anticipation and, Insane stuff wrapping around the baseline, finding shooters, throwing the ball behind his head like he's just one of the great creators offensively that the game has ever seen. And if you are like out on Luca, you're just wrong. I can get the frustrations with his defensive effort and with his temperament. But man, you just do not want to be on that side of history. Like there are so few comparisons historically for this kind of offensive greatness off the bat over a, like, five-year span. What we've seen from Luca since year two is just really ridiculous stuff. The volume as a scorer and playmaker and the levels that he has vaulted these team offenses to. So it's gonna be a matter of getting the right combinations of personnel around him, but there's no question what this dude is capable of. It's historically great stuff. The question is just gonna be, like, How high among the Mm -hmm. all-time greats can he climb? It's going to be pretty high though. So Luca has to be number one. No question about it. Is there anybody else you want to mention here, Logan, just with all the tough cuts?
3: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Quickly, I'll give a shout out to the, you know, first couple guards off my list. Cade Cunningham, Darius Garland, LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Maxey. I still love all those guys. And I think there's two notable guys that we left off our list that maybe people will point to. And, Uh, maybe scratch their heads about, and that's Ja Morant and Zion Williamson. Uh, I marked them as drama concerns uh, on my list, Uh and so I omitted them from my list. Uh, Just uh, Ja and his play style, uh, all the off-field stuff, Zion off-field stuff, and then, you know, weight concerns, being on the court actually healthy. I just have a little too much – I just have some big question marks about those guys and, like, actually, like, being on the floor too – to be up here I think I don't think Ja would have been on my list I think I'd probably still take Halliburton I'd take Fox over him he'd be a tough cut Zion would be on my list probably over Halliburton if I didn't have any concerns I mean he may be actually like way higher on my list if I didn't have concerns about him playing basketball Zion's yeah Zion's a really special all time basketball player already Um, so he would be my
2: first cut but those guys are like on my like banned list you know I mean there is no argument to me if you are presuming health for these guys to put zion mm-hmm. below number six on this list i don't know if everybody understands how monumentally great he is he is one of the best rim pressures and finishers that we have ever seen period point blank he's 6'6, 285 quick and jumps out the gym and just goes through everybody and has such impressive body control and skill as a finisher around the rim I mean, if you want to hate on Zion's basketball game, I think you're off base. And he's a legitimately good playmaker. Like he's just one of the most efficient volume scorers that we've ever seen. He puts up 25 a night on 65% true shooting, all while having this insane level of attention that he demands from defenses as a collapser because you just can't stop him coming downhill. But you sure got to try. You got to send multiple bodies at him. But I don't know. I debated putting him on here for a bit, but he's played 114 games in four years, man. Like, I'm sorry. He's just so consistently hurt and it's so predictable given his build and play style. I legitimately thought, I was like, would I rather have a a chance at one fully healthy Zion season at his prime than some of the guys on this list? And I did think about that, but I just can't say that. It's something that we have not seen, and I don't know when we will see it. With Jaw, I totally get why that would be surprising to some people. I think that Jaw gets overrated because of how good the Grizzlies are as a team and because of his raw production. It's very hard for me to see an argument for John Morant over De'Aaron Fox. I think that Fox is clearly better suited for a playoff environment as a scorer because of how much better he is as a mid range shooter, and that is such a valuable counter. I think Jaw has really stagnated this year and didn't progress as a playmaker. He is still very much, okay, well, I can do these great things reacting to how the defense is collapsing around me, but he doesn't anticipate at the level of the best playmakers in the league. He sucks defensively. Uh, He's super erratic as a pull-up jump shooter. He's not an efficient scorer overall. He is a guy who was going to dominate the ball. And then, yeah, he also was making bad decisions off the court. It's tough to make a jaw case when there are so many dynamic young guards who are just like better offensive engines without the downsides that he brings. So Zion is purely about health. Jaw, I just don't think is as good as some of the other guys or doesn't project to be as good because we'll see if he can get better from here. It's really going to be about taking a jump as a jump shooter and as a decision maker and maybe defensively if he could achieve those things, but he hasn't taken those jumps and those have been the key jumps for him all along. So I'm skeptical, which sucks because I really loved Jaws a prospect and he's obviously really, really good, but yeah, not the most conducive to winning basketball at the highest level as a number one, in my opinion, not a great half court offensive engine. So I'll shout out one last guy, Logan. I think that you got some good ones on the short list. I just want to say Franz Wagner is so him. Franz (laughs) Wagner is going to be so good and does so many winning things. I made a YouTube video about him last year, but the playmaking, the defense, the shooting, the scoring in the lane, that dude is going to be nasty on a winning team. He's clearly better than Paolo right now. I don't expect that to stick, but if I were trying to win basketball games, yeah. I want Franz, man. And uh, I just wanted to shout him out because he's the man and he doesn't get as much shine as some of these other guys. But there you have it, folks. Another grueling list. God, it was hard to rank all these guys, but it was also fun. So if you enjoyed this, appreciate you. You can find our videos always on the Volume YouTube channel. You can also listen to our full podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us across social media, Instagram and TikTok at nerdsesh. TikTok is where we're most consistent with our trivia content and clips from the podcast. will go out across all socials. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. You can join our discord. That is at the link tree across our social media bios just to talk basketball, football with us whenever you want. And you can get yourself some nerd sesh merch. We've got flags like the ones behind both Logan and I. We've got hats. We've got shirts. We've got hoodies. We've got a specific shirt that has like some of our most iconic nicknames. If you watch our TikToks on the back, the ones that we start those off with, that's my personal favorite. So check any and all of that out if you want to. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash.